you're listening to the Mens Rea podcast, and this is the story of Suzanne Capper and of Sylvia Likens. of the 14th of December, 1992, at about ten past six in the morning, Barry Sutcliffe and two colleagues were on their way to work. They were driving in the outskirts of Romilly, east of Stockport, and just south of the Greater Manchester area. They were travelling up the Comstall Road in Romilly when they came across a figure staggering along the lane. The figure was a young girl, Suzanne Capper. She was in a bad way. She had burns all over her and was in obvious need of immediate help. Barry ran to the nearest house on the road, that of Michael and Margaret Coop, and knocked on the door until someone answered. Then they brought Suzanne inside and rang for an ambulance. Inside, out of the dim light of the laneway, the extent of Suzanne's injuries shocked those who were now trying to help. She was very badly burnt, all over her body. Her head had been shaved and she had gashes on her scalp. The coops attempted to tend to her while they waited for the emergency services. Suzanne was parched and drank six glasses of water but wasn't able to hold the glass herself as her hands were so badly damaged. Mr. Coop said, quote, Both her hands appeared like ash. Her legs were just like raw meat, and her feet appeared to be badly charred. I was struck at how polite the victim was. She was constantly thanking my wife for her assistance. End quote. His wife went on to say, quote, I instinctively went to put my arms around her, but she pulled away, because she could not bear to be touched. Her hands were red raw and black at the fingertips. Her legs were red from top to bottom. She couldn't bear anything near her legs. End quote. Suzanne told her rescuers that she had been left to die in a nearby field. She said, quote, They burned me. They put petrol on me. End quote. Whoever had brought her to this place had thrown her down an embankment before drenching her with flammable liquid and putting a lighter to her back. Somehow she managed to clamber back up the bank and make her way along the road until Barry Sutcliffe had come across her. Margaret Coop said that for some reason she had the firm belief that Suzanne was going to be okay. Now that she got into safety and help was on the way, Suzanne would be taken care of and would get better in hospital. But that was not to be. Suzanne was 16 years old at the time of her death. She hadn't had the most ideal upbringing. She was from a working-class family, and they had their difficulties. She had ended up in care two years previously in 1990, when her mother and stepfather John separated, and after that, she and her older sister Michelle were placed with John 
Things were turbulent in the household, and she began to skip school around this time as well. Despite all these troubles, she was described as a sweet and gentle girl, who was easily influenced. She seemed to crave affection and approval, and spent much of her time, in fact, staying with friends. She would do anything for these friends. She wanted to make sure that they were happy with her, so that she felt wanted and cared about. But before falling into a coma, Suzanne had named her attackers. There were six in total. Bernadette McNeely, Jean Powell, Glyn Powell, Jeffrey Lee, Anthony Michael Dudson, and Clifford Pook. Suzanne had known all of the people involved. They had been her friends, apparently. Suzanne had spent a lot of time at Jean Powell's house. Jean was ten years Suzanne's senior, and Suzanne had babysat for the older woman and her three kids since she was ten years old. She had gone out with Jean's little brother, Clifford Pook, who she had also named in the hospital. Later, it would be noted that Suzanne would do pretty much anything that Jean asked her to, and that she, quote, pampered their every whim, end quote. But Jean wasn't a positive influence in Suzanne's life or anything. Powell's place was known as a good place to find drugs, speed in particular. Bernadette McNeely was a mother of three with a drug addiction who had moved in a few doors down from Jean Powell. She soon became fast friends with Jean and moved into the small Victorian terrace, at 97 Langworthy Road as well. Powell and McNeely shared a room downstairs and their kids shared the upstairs bedrooms. John, Suzanne's stepfather, knew about the group and the house. Suzanne's older sister Michelle had lived there for a while herself, but she left when Powell began to hang around with McNeely. Michelle thought that the woman was bad news and described her as evil. John Capper had only a vague idea of what was going on in the house, but still referred to it as a quote-unquote house of evil. He said that he tried to stop Suzanne from going over there, but she refused. Jeffrey Lee, another named by Suzanne, was also a visitor to the Powell house, where he bought drugs from Jean. His other notable attribute was having a burglary conviction for robbing his elderly and disabled aunt. The final person named was McNeely's boyfriend, 16-year-old Anthony Dudson, who also slept with Jean Powell and Suzanne. The morning that Suzanne was rushed into the hospital, already dying from her burns and other injuries, the police headed out to the terrace on Langworthy Road. They had instructions to arrest everyone that they found at the home. All six named were brought in. Bernadette McNeely and Jean Powell were said to laugh and joke with one another as they were arrested and put into the back of the police car. Initially, all six of them denied that they had done anything to Suzanne at all, but finally Dudson, whose father had visited him in the station and begged him to tell the police what he knew, decided to give them a statement. Police were shocked when they heard the details of what had happened to Suzanne. Not only had the group driven her out to an isolated place and set her alight, they had held her for a full week against her will, and tortured her periodically throughout that time. One of the detective inspectors, D.I. Wall, was shocked as Dudson began talking. 
He said, quote, As the story began to unfold, we just couldn't believe it. I kept asking myself how one human could do this to another, end quote. The police were so moved that they and the civilian members of staff at the station made a collection in order to have flowers sent to Suzanne's bedside at the hospital. On the 17th of December, 1992, all six of the gang appeared before the magistrate's court in Manchester, charged with counts of kidnapping and attempted murder. On the 23rd of December, further charges were added to each of their sheets, in light of Suzanne's death. They were all charged now with her murder. An inquest into Suzanne's death was held at Manchester Coroner's Court on January 8, 1993. The pathologist Dr. William Lawler gave evidence that Suzanne had burns to 75-80% to of her body, and that these burns were consistent with having petrol thrown over her and being set alight. Her death was due to complications of those burns, and even once she had managed to get help, her chances of survival had been slim. When he concluded the proceedings, the coroner spoke to Suzanne's mother and stepfather, who were present for the hearing. He offered not only his deepest condolences, but the sympathies of the entire nation for them, for the horrible events that had led to Suzanne's death. The full details of the ordeal that Suzanne had suffered came to light at the trial of the six people she had named as responsible for her injuries. It began on the 16th of November 1993 before Mr. Justice Potts at the Manchester Crown Court. All six of the defendants had denied the charges of murder. There was some disagreement as to what had first turned Suzanne from being the tag-along teen who hung out with the older woman to the target for their ire. It may have been over a missing pink duffel coat owned by Bernadette McNeely. Jean Powell told a story about Suzanne trying to persuade her to prostitute herself, which angered her. And most convincingly, McNeely had blamed Suzanne for giving her and her 16-year-old boyfriend pubic lice, saying that they had picked it up after sleeping in a bed that had been used by Suzanne at one point. Whatever the reason, on the 7th of December 1992, Suzanne was asked to come by the house at 97 Langworthy Road. They told Suzanne that a lad she fancied was over at the house, and had asked to see her. When she arrived there, McNeely was there with her boyfriend Dudson, as well as Jean Powell and Glynn, her ex-husband. As soon as Suzanne walked in, they grabbed her and held her down. They shaved her head and eyebrows and then made her clean up the hair and put it in the bin. They put a plastic bag over her head and began beating her as they forced her to walk around inside the house. When they finally let her go, she fell to the floor, where Jean and Bernadette began kicking her. Then they beat her with what was described at trial as a three-foot-long wooden implement, as well as a leather belt. Then she was brought up to the bathroom and made to shave off her own pubic hair. It was an act of revenge for McNeely and her boyfriend, as they had had to do the same when they discovered their infestation, and it served as a sort of ritualistic humiliation for the girl to have to do so to herself while they all watched and threatened her. They shoved Suzanne into a cupboard and locked her in before bringing her upstairs to another cupboard in a bedroom the next morning. 
but that didn't last long because her crying was upsetting the children. Suzanne was then transported down the road to McNeely's old house at number 91 Langworthy Road. There she was brought to a downstairs bedroom to be held. There was a box base of a bed in the room which they flipped over to expose the wooden slats that would hold a mattress, and the gang tied her to that spread-eagled with an electrical cord. She was kept that way for five days. She was injected with amphetamines and burned with cigarettes, lying there in her own urine and bowel movements. She screamed and screamed, and eventually they began to play music to drown her out. They played the rave track, Hi, I'm Chucky, Wanna Play, over and over again through headphones with the volume turned all the way up, and eventually the words Chucky is coming to play would send Suzanne into fits of screaming on its own. During the week she was there, Pook and Lee called to the house and were shown Suzanne, who was blindfolded and gagged, still tied to the bed. They took her from the bed and dunked her into a bath filled with a caustic cleaner. They used a hard wire brush to try and clean the filth from her, but between the chemicals and the wire, they mainly just succeeded in removing layers of her skin. Clifford Pook decided that he wanted to have a bit of fun with Suzanne. He took her gag out and ordered her to open her mouth. He told her he was going to rip her teeth out. He grabbed a pliers and started bashing at her teeth, chipping them. Then he put the pliers to a tooth and pulled. The first one just snapped from her mouth, broken off at the root. He hit her mouth a few more times and then tried again. This time he pulled the tooth so hard that Suzanne's head was pulled forward and down, and then they, McNeely, Powell, and Dudson, heard a snap. Pook started to laugh as he showed the tooth and its root in the pliers to his friends. He had succeeded. Another person visited McNeely's house during the days that Suzanne was kept there. David Hill, who was 18 at the time, was asked by Suzanne's captors to effectively stay in the house to watch over Suzanne. But he didn't know that when he had been asked over. He had heard Dudson yelling at someone in the back room and asked what was going on, and then Dudson brought him into the room and showed him Suzanne still tied up to the bed. He said that he saw a cloth covering part of her face, but that he could see blood on her lip, and he said that her head had been shaved. He was told that some of the girl's teeth had been pulled out with a plier, and then he was left in the house on his own to keep watch. Suzanne called out to him and asked him to untie her and let her go. She wanted him to help her, but Hill told the court that he was terrified of the group responsible for Suzanne being there in the first place. He said, quote, I thought they would batter me. If I'd said anything, They'd all have got me, wouldn't they? I didn't know what to do. I was too shocked to do anything. End quote. Soon the gang heard that Michelle, Suzanne's sister, was worried that she hadn't been seen around in nearly a week, and that their stepfather was going to go to the police to report Suzanne as a missing person. They realized then that something would have to be done to bring Suzanne's captivity to an end, and their primary concern was trying to ensure that there was a distance between them and her. They knew what they had done and wanted to make sure that it would never catch up with them. 
Suzanne would have to be got rid of. And so early on the 14th of December 1992, they forced Suzanne into the boot of a stolen Fiat Panda fitted with false plates. McNeely, Gene Powell, Glyn Powell, and Dudson were all in the car. They drove to a somewhat isolated spot on the outskirts of Stockport, a lane off Werneth Low. Evidence was heard that McNeely giggled on the 25-kilometre or 15-mile drive there. When they got to a quiet spot, they pulled Suzanne out of the boot. By this point in her ordeal, all she was wearing were dirty leggings and underwear. They pushed her down an embankment into some overgrown brambles. McNeely doused her with petrol then. Such were Suzanne's injuries that, at this point, after being tied down for nearly a week, she couldn't really stand on her own anymore. She fell over, and McNeely ordered her to stand. But McNeely couldn't get the petrol on the girl to light, so Glyn Powell took over. He got some paper and made a taper, but that didn't work. Eventually, he walked right up to her and flicked on a lighter at her back. Suzanne burst into flame and screamed. Jean Powell said at trial that she hadn't gotten out of the car. Rather, she described sitting there in the darkness until she saw a flash of light as Suzanne caught fire, and then she heard her screams. She told the court that she had believed that they were going to let Suzanne go once they reached the woods at the back of the golf course because she was going to be reported missing. But she also admitted that, had that been the case, Suzanne would have just likely tried to make her way home. It didn't seem like much of a solution to the predicament that the six torturers had found themselves in. When asked about what she had done when she supposedly realised that Suzanne wasn't to simply be released, she said, quote, I was numb. I was scared. She had done nothing to try and help Suzanne, a girl she had known for six years and who she had considered a friend, and someone she said she loved like a sister. McNeely also tried to distance herself from the actual act of burning Suzanne. She said that she had held the canister of petrol, but that Anthony Dudson had grabbed it from her. On the stand, she also said that she had only injected Suzanne with amphetamines to save her from being injected with heroin. And yet, as Suzanne burned and screamed, McNeely began to sing. She belted out a few bars of Disco Inferno. Burn, baby, burn. She laughed as they all packed back into the small white car. They drove off thinking that surely Suzanne was dead. The four stopped off at a shop to buy some cans and headed back to Jean Powell's house. Cliff Pook and Lee were there when they arrived and asked if they'd done it. Had they killed Suzanne? Glynn said that they had, and handed Cliff back his lighter. A few hours later, they all found themselves in police custody. The police recovered Suzanne's hair from the bin in number 97 and found the upturned bed base, as well as the pliers with Suzanne's blood on them, on the mantelpiece at number 91. The story of what happened to Suzanne came out in drips and drabs, through the testimony of each of the accused, the evidence given by the pathologists and other witnesses who had been in and around the houses while Suzanne was being held. Each of the defendants took to the stand to give their version of what had happened, and each minimised their own involvement while throwing their co-defendants under the proverbial bus. 
On the 24th of November, Clifford Pook was cleared of the murder charge on the direction of Mr. Justice Potts, and the jury began their deliberations on the remaining charges on the 16th of December. They returned after nearly ten hours of discussion. Bernadette McNeely was found guilty of murder and conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, having already pleaded guilty to the charge of false imprisonment against her. She was sentenced to life imprisonment, with a minimum of 25 years to be served. Jean Powell was also found guilty of murder and conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, having previously pleaded guilty to false imprisonment. She was given life imprisonment with a minimum of 25 years to be served. Glyn Powell, Jean's ex-husband, was found guilty of murder, conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, and false imprisonment. Again, he was given a life sentence with a minimum tariff of 25 years. Jeffrey Lee had pleaded guilty to false imprisonment and was acquitted of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm and murder. He got 12 years. Anthony Michael Dudson had also pleaded guilty to false imprisonment and was found guilty of both conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm and murder. He was sentenced to be detained indefinitely, with a minimum of 18 years to be served. He was held at Her Majesty's pleasure, due to the fact he was still a teen at the time of the murder. Clifford Pook had pleaded guilty to conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm and false imprisonment before the judge had cleared him of the murder charge. He got 15 years. Two of the jurors wept as the sentences were handed down, and in a statement after the proceedings, D.I. Wall, who had interviewed the gang at their initial arrest, made a statement to the press. He said, quote, Psychological reports say that these are absolutely sane individuals. It's frightening that they are such ordinary people. There is nothing special about any of them. End quote. He went on to say, quote, Each of them were trying to outdo each other in the various acts of torture they could perpetrate. End quote. Despite the fact that this was an absolutely horrific crime, Suzanne Capper is not a name that's widely remembered by the public. The trial for her murder started in the wake and fallout from the trial in relation to the murder of James Bulger, and much of the national media in Britain was focused at that time on John Venables and Robert Thompson, the youngest convicted murderers of the 20th century. But the atrocious ordeal that Suzanne had gone through before her death did spark some limited debate. There was a certain section of journalists that pointed to what they saw as a general malaise in British society, something that they called benefits culture. This was a term used to describe families and neighbourhoods or localities that were classed as disadvantaged in a number of ways. Most people got their income from welfare provided by the state or had state supplements to get by. This could happen generationally and the area that Suzanne and her attackers were from, Moston, was in fact one of these areas. This was despite the fact that on paper, the Greater Manchester area was in a period of growth and rejuvenation, but this, and the money that went along with it, wasn't spread evenly throughout the city. There were areas where even newly built housing was poor quality and falling apart soon after it was built. There were areas of high crime that were considered dangerous to even walk through. 
Drugs and violence and poverty all went together, and of course welfare was a common thread in these areas. And so being on welfare got the full blame. Receiving financial help from the state, being one of those people who quote-unquote never worked a day in their life, somehow commentators thought that this had had a direct impact on the morals of the gang who had attacked Suzanne. Added to that were the overtones provided by the choice of music the gang had made. They had played music with clips from the recently released horror flick, Child's Play 3. Perhaps watching violent horror and gore such as this had warped their minds, and had given them the idea to torture this girl, and had somehow by its mere existence and their consumption of it given tacit permission for the inhumane treatment of a younger and more vulnerable member of their group. Much was made of the fact that at 91 Langworthy Road, the former house of McNeely and her children, the police had found a number of items that were described as occult in nature, and she had a collection of horror books, including Stephen King's Misery. One of the lawyers in the case commented, quote, If you asked me if this case was an argument for censorship, I would say no. If you asked me whether this material in these minds had some effect on what happened, I would have to say yes. End quote. But if living off the state as so-called leeches or scroungers, or being exposed to graphic violence or something along those lines had allowed an evil or whatever within the gang of people to commit such barbaric acts on a young girl that they knew, or if the attack was somehow a product of the times and the culture of the aggressors, then that doesn't explain the other cases where groups of people have imprisoned and tortured another. Suzanne's case is far from the only one of its kind. On October 16, 1965, police were called to a house on East New York Street in Indianapolis, in the United States. They were told that they were attending the scene of a possible death of a young girl. When they arrived at the house, they were met by a gaunt woman who identified herself as Gertie Wright. She told them that they were there to see Sylvia Likens, a 16-year-old girl who had been lodging in the house. They found her in a bedroom, lying on a dirty mattress. She had trousers and a sweater on, but it was pulled up to show her stomach. On it was carved the words, I am a prostitute and proud of it. They also saw a large number three. Mrs. Wright told the police that Sylvia had run off with a group of boys a few days before. She had stumbled back into their yard only an hour earlier, clutching a note. It apologized for putting Mrs. Wright through so much trouble and costing her so much money. By 7 p.m., the local coroner had arrived. By that stage, Sylvia was in complete rigor, indicating she'd possibly been dead up to eight hours. He thought it seemed that she'd been bathed recently, and noted her many visible injuries. She had a bruise on the side of her head and temple. She was missing a tooth and had cuts, burns, and scalds all over her body. Patches of her skin looked raw, and seemed to have been eroded, either by hot water or acid. 
there were deep circular burns on her that he presumed to be from cigarettes. Her pubic area was swollen. All the injuries were at various stages of healing. Whatever had happened to this girl, it had been going on for a prolonged period of time. Mrs. Wright's children were in and out of the house during this time, joined by some neighborhood kids interested in the activity in the house. Soon they were joined by Jenny Likens, Sylvia's little sister. As Mrs. Wright fussed around in the room, Jenny repeated the same story that Wright had earlier. Sylvia had run off with boys. But when she had the chance, she hurriedly told the detective that had come that if he got her away from the house, she'd tell him everything that had happened. By the end of that night, Mrs. Wright, whose true name was Gertrude Baniszewski, a number of her children and a neighbour boy, Richard Hobbs, 14 at the time, were all at the local police station. Gertie Baniszewski and Hobbs were held on murder charges. Three of the Baniszewski children and another five local children were also charged with juvenile delinquency. Within a few short months, a grand jury had indicted Gertie Baniszewski and some of her children, Paula, 17, Stephanie, 15, and Johnny, 12, as well as neighbours Coy Hubbard, 15, and Richard Hobbs, 14. They were all charged with first-degree murder. The other neighbourhood children were subpoenaed as state witnesses. The Likens girls had ended up at the Baniszewski's house in July of 1965. The family was going through some difficulties, and Gertie had offered to provide room and board for the girls and treat them like her own for 20 bucks a week. That would allow Lester Likens and his wife to seek work as concession stand operators in a travelling carnival. And Gertrude was short of cash. She had seven kids living with her and lived off child support and meagre earnings from taking in ironing from the neighbourhood. She was also not a well woman. She had asthma as well as suffering from depression and anxiety, for which she took sedatives. She was also a chain smoker. The Likens girls had met the Baniszewskis through neighbourhood friends. Their house on East New York Street was a converging point for the teens and kids from the streets around and the house was always full of boys and girls coming and going. At first, Sylvia and Jenny were treated like all the others in the house, but soon Gertrude's attitude to both of them harshened. She accused them of stealing, of hiding food, of calling names, and then the beating started. Baniszewski had a paddle that she would use on the girls' backs. If she wasn't feeling up to it, she would deputise the punishment to her eldest daughter, Paula, who nearly seemed to relish doling out the pain. They would get into trouble for nearly anything, even having been given food by others, like a sandwich from their older sister, or eating too much at a church supper. Food seemed to be a big issue, as money was tight, and there wasn't a lot to go around. Much of the milk that they had was put aside for Baniszewski's youngest son, and often the others would have only toast and soup for the day, they would eat their soup dinners in shifts, as there were only three spoons in the house. Sylvia particularly was singled out and seemed to get the worst of it. By the end of the summer, Gertrude became quite sure that Sylvia had been up to no good with boys and told her that she was surely pregnant. 
This drew the ire of the other girls in the house. Paula pushed her from the kitchen chair, saying she wasn't fit to have a seat, and Baniszewski kicked Sylvia in the crotch. The irony of the situation was lost on them. Paula had herself run off with a boy from Kentucky, and was herself pregnant at that time. Yet she considered herself far more godly than the Lycans girls. Sylvia had become close with Stephanie Baniszewski, one of Gertie's daughters who was of similar age, 15. They went to school together, Sylvia having re-enrolled despite dropping out a few months before when she had turned 16. They both worked in the school cafeteria, a perk of which was a hot meal, something they definitely wouldn't get at home. But Sylvia didn't like school and she often missed her classes, prompting letters to be sent back to Baniszewski, who even spoke to Sylvia's teachers about her truancy. Sylvia's circumstances changed drastically after a petty teenage squabble. Got back to Stephanie that Sylvia had been spreading rumours that she and her sister Paula were prostitutes. Stephanie went home and told Sylvia what she had heard about herself, and sobbing, Sylvia admitted what she had done. Stephanie punched Sylvia in the face. When Stephanie's boyfriend Coy Hubbard heard about this, he became enraged and slapped her too, and banged her head against the wall. Then he flipped her onto the floor. Later, Johnny Baniszewski, aged 12 at the time, also came home with the rumour, this time about Paula. Gertie paddled Sylvia. Mrs. Baniszewski was convinced that Sylvia was no good. She was a filthy whore of a girl who messed around with boys. She seemed convinced that the girl was pregnant. She also wanted to ensure that Sylvia's little sister knew what sort of girl Sylvia was. She'd often force Jenny to strike Sylvia under threat of being beaten herself. Once, in order to show Jenny Sylvia's true nature, Gertie had Sylvia take off all her clothes in the living room in front of a number of gathered kids and then insert a glass Pepsi-Cola bottle into herself. Stephanie came home from school during the degrading act and, not knowing her mother had ordered it, went right up to Sylvia and slapped her across the face for acting in such a manner. There was another incident when Sylvia came home with some gym clothing that she said she had found. She had told Gertie that she needed the costume for P.E. in school and asked for money to buy some, but Gertie refused. When Sylvia arrived in with the clothing, Gertie was quite sure that the girl had stolen them. This led to a beating with a leather belt and being kicked in the pelvis a number of times. Coy Hubbard arrived then and found Stephanie crying over the plight of her friend, but Gertie told him that Sylvia had upset her, so he decided to help quote-unquote punish Sylvia further, along with Mrs. Baniszewski. Gertie not only allowed the other kids to pick on Sylvia and hit her, but seemed to egg them on. Mrs. Baniszewski had a strange relationship with the local kids. She, despite being 37 years old, liked to see herself as one of them, just another one of the girls. And Sylvia did never fight back or try to defend herself, and when Gertie would see one of the other kids get physical with her, she'd yell to let them sort the fight out themselves. Callers to the house were told that Sylvia was a troublemaker. A local pastor from the Baptist church Sylvia and Paula attended called by twice to be told that Sylvia had been stealing, was pregnant, ran around with local boys, and Gertie was at her wit's end. 
A neighbor down the road had called social services after seeing open wounds and sores on Sylvia, which prompted a visit from a public health nurse on the 15th of October. Again, she was told that Sylvia was no good, and what's more, she'd been put out of the house for her behaviour. The school called a number of times, looking for the girl too. Gertie, by that stage, had barred Sylvia from attending, which she didn't make any objections to. They contacted Mrs. Wright, as they knew her, to ask about Sylvia, and Gertie told them she didn't know what to do about the girl, that she was at her wit's end with her. By the 12th of October, Sylvia had been banished downstairs to the basement, where she padded her sleeping place on the floor with old clothes and rags. The reasoning behind the move to Baniszewski was that Sylvia had begun to wet the bed and was therefore not fit to sleep upstairs any longer. The incontinence was due to damage to Sylvia's kidneys, no doubt due to one of the many beatings she had endured, but that would never be diagnosed. Her banishment down to the dank basement was the solution to the wetting problem, not a doctor. Paula and Coy Hubbard took to pushing Sylvia down the stairs to be rid of her. She subsisted on crackers and water. Out of sight, out of mind, and no need to feed Sylvia, who was now less than human. She would be taken out of the basement every other day for a bath. Gertrude was convinced the girl was filthy and didn't clean herself. She'd be dunked into a bath filled with steaming hot water, with her hands and feet tied together to make it a bit easier for the kids to carry out. It was around this time that the burning began too. Putting out cigarettes on Sylvia, or throwing lit matches at her, or even setting her clothes alight, was a new amusement. Gertrude started it, and then her kids and their friends followed suit. Most of the burns were small, button-sized, but some were large, as big around as a baseball, and needed some sort of medical treatment. So Gertrude poured rubbing alcohol over the wounds. Paula and Coy Hubbard preferred to rub Sylvia's skin and open wounds with salt. By this time, Paula had lost the job. She worked in a nearby pharmacy, her employers saying she simply wasn't mature enough for the job. And so her responsibilities at home increased, and she had far more time to torment Sylvia, who she hated, just like her mother did. As Paula and Gertie and Coy were joined by more siblings and neighborhood kids in using their live punching bag for sport, it was clear that they couldn't allow talk of the conditions Sylvia was being kept in to get out. Speaking of her or answering questions about her was forbidden. It was as if she no longer existed. They now told people she had run off. Meanwhile, Jenny was sick with worry about her sister. She knew that Sylvia had always got the worst deal, but things had escalated. The sisters had told their older sister, Diane, that they were punished with the paddle and the belt, but she thought that the younger girls were exaggerating the severity of their so-called punishments. She recalled that their own father had used a belt to correct them, and looking back, she reasoned, they deserved it at the time. The Lycans called into the Baniszewski house when they were in the city, and each time they had been satisfied by what they saw. They called by on the 6th of October before they were to travel down to Florida with the carnival, and again were satisfied by the conditions there. The girls, of course, didn't complain about their treatment by Gertrude in front of her. They were too frightened to say anything. 
and now that things had taken a sadistic turn, Jenny had no idea who to turn to, and feared for her own safety should she speak out about what was going on with Sylvia, or try to defend her. Sylvia soon found herself tied up in the basement by the Banaskeski kids, and she would be gagged if she made any noise. She was starting to starve, and collapsed while moving around the house due to lack of food. She was force-fed the contents of a baby's diaper in punishment for accepting a sandwich from her big sister in a park over two months previously, and was told that she was to make half a cup of water last a day. Later, the water would be replaced with urine. Paula had also grabbed her by the neck. She was that angry about this two-month-old sandwich incident. How dare Sylvia have had something that the others did not? Sylvia was given food at one point, a small bowl of soup, but she was not given a spoon. The household was now down to one, and though she tried to scoop up the liquid with her fingers, the bowl was taken away from her before she could finish it. Sylvia was forced to write a letter outlining her supposed misdeeds that Gertie would be able to point to if anyone discovered the nature of the so-called punishment that Sylvia was being subjected to. Sylvia didn't have the energy to resist and never had the disposition to fight. She was moved up to a bed for a night after being in the basement for a week, but she was tied down to it and she wouldn't be let visit the bathroom until she had learned not to wet the bed. That night, Jenny was able to get her sister a glass of water, which Sylvia drank before she fell asleep. Of course, she wet the bed that night too. Days later, on Saturday the 23rd of October, Sylvia was ordered by Gertrude to strip once again in the kitchen this time, and Gertrude began giving the girl a so-called tattoo. But quickly she became tired of it and passed off the job to Richard Hobbs. He heated the needle, apparently to sterilise it, and etched the words, I'm a prostitute and proud of it, across Sylvia's stomach. She knew better than to scream, but she gritted her teeth and moaned at the pain. Hobbs would slap her if she fidgeted. After that, Richard and one of the younger siblings, Shirley, who was ten, decided that they would brand Sylvia. The plan was to mark an S on her body, for Shirley. They got an anchor bolt with a circular end. They wanted to create two semicircles by heating half of the end of the tool, but instead they ended up burning a three into Sylvia's skin, just above the carving on her stomach. When Gertie was shown, she teased Sylvia, asking what was she going to do now? No one would marry her with that on her body. After Richard went home, Coy came over. He threw Sylvia up against the wall in the basement half a dozen times. It was that night that Sylvia told her sister that she knew she was going to die. The next day, Sylvia was forced to write yet another letter to her parents, and then was suspended downstairs in the basement, where Gertrude tried to feed her crackers. But Sylvia had given up at that point. She didn't want food. So Gertie punched her in the stomach, and forced the crackers down her throat. It seems by the day after that, Gertrude knew she would be in serious trouble should Sylvia be found in the state that she was in, in her house. She beat her again while formulating a plan to get Sylvia out of the house and leave her somewhere. Maybe she would even call the police and report the girl missing. 
When Sylvia heard these discussions, she tried to make a run for it, but Gertie grabbed her as she made it to the back door, bringing her back into the house. Gertie tried to feed the girl toast to see if that might improve how she looked, but Sylvia wasn't able to swallow anymore. Her mouth was swollen. That resulted in Gertie thrashing Sylvia across the face with a brass curtain rod. On Monday, Jenny came home from school for lunch and made Sylvia toast. She brought it down to her in the basement, but Sylvia couldn't eat it. That afternoon, Gertrude brought her upstairs and propped her in a chair in the kitchen. She wanted Sylvia to eat donuts and drink milk. But Sylvia couldn't. She knocked over the milk glass as she reached for it. Her hand was spasming. In frustration, Baniszewski pushed her from the chair, but soon propped her up again and poured more milk for the girl. Sylvia tried again to drink the milk, but she couldn't get the glass to her mouth. She was put down in the basement again. As the kids returned back to the house that afternoon, Gertrude was shouting at Sylvia in the basement to clean herself up. She stood on her head and shouted at her that she was faking. Jenny left the house with a rake. She wanted to try and make some money cleaning up the leaves in the neighbourhood. That was the last time she would see her sister alive. Meanwhile, the other kids had decided to help Baniszewski clean up Sylvia, who was by now delirious. Randy Lepper, who was only eleven, went home to fetch a hose to help Gertie clean down the basement, but instead, Sylvia had been covered with laundry detergent and was being hosed down by young Johnny. Stephanie came home then, and Gertrude asked her to help clean Sylvia, saying she'd had an accident in her shorts. Sylvia was given a bath and redressed in a sweater and pedal pushers. Then she was allowed to lie down in one of the bedrooms. But Baniszewski was agitated by this point. She kept yelling that Sylvia was faking it. She was in hysterics. And then Sylvia stopped breathing. Stephanie tried to resuscitate her and gave her mouth to mouth while Richard went to call for the police. She managed to get Sylvia breathing again, but when the police arrived, Sylvia was beyond their help. Once they were brought to the police station, the kids began to talk, though. No longer did they stick to the story of Sylvia having run off with five boys and returned that day in an awful state. Richard Hobbs told them everything he had done, including carving into Sylvia's skin, saying he'd done it because Gertrude had told him to. Richard admitted hitting her a number of times, too. He said he didn't know why Sylvia hadn't just left. He said, in fact, he didn't really know her at all. He was detained in a hospital, as he was a diabetic, until he would face trial. Coy Hubbard was also picked up and admitted that he had hit Sylvia and flipped her over. By the time he sat in the police station, he couldn't remember why. Paula had said she'd whipped the girl with a belt and had once broken her own wrist, punching Sylvia in the face. Young Johnny not only confessed to his own awful actions, but gave the names of everyone he remembered mistreating Sylvia. His siblings, Paula, Stephanie, Marie, and Shirley, and local kids Anna Sisko, Judy Duke, Darlene McGuire, Randy Lepper, Mike Monroe, and of course, 
Coy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs. Meanwhile, Gertrude Baniszewski was throwing her own kids under the bus. She admitted that she had hit Sylvia maybe three times as punishment, and that she had made her sleep in the basement again maybe three times because she'd started to wet the bed. Maybe once she'd burned her with a cigarette, but that was all. She was too old and sick and weak to inflict the damage that they'd seen on Sylvia's body. She was a single woman looking after nine kids, and she'd just been doing her best. It wasn't her fault. In January of 1966, while preparations for the trial of the six accused was ongoing, notice was given that there was a, quote, suggestion of insanity for both Paula and Gertrude Baniszewski. Both women were sent to a hospital to be assessed. But Paula also went to give birth. She gave birth on the 13th of January to a little girl who was placed in foster care. She named her daughter Gertrude. Eventually, the other four defendants also submitted suggestions of insanity. All of them were assessed, but each report returned stating that psychiatrists had found they were all mentally sound. Then each of the defendants sought to have their trials heard separately, with their lawyers arguing that evidence that was inadmissible against their client might be taken into account by a jury, given that there were a number of defendants, and not all the evidence would apply equally to each of them. But the prosecutor argued that they were charged with murdering Sylvia in concert with one another, and that therefore they should be tried together. The judge agreed. There was also an application for a change of venue due to the adverse publicity the case had garnered locally, but this was denied also. The publicity had been statewide, and so the chances of bias, the judge reasoned, wouldn't be any better or worse in another county in Indiana. Finally, the trial began on the 18th of April 1966. The entire first week of the trial was taken up with jury selection. It proved nearly impossible to get the five lawyers representing the state and the defendants to agree on twelve people who were suitable. When court resumed the following Monday, the first order of business was that prosecutor knew for the state had decided that they would join the motion put forward by Stephanie Baniszewski's lawyers for a separate trial for their client. Mr. New said that he had discovered substantial evidence over the weekend that pertained to attempts made by Stephanie to help Sylvia, and to the low level of Stephanie's participation in the events that occurred leading to Sylvia's death. The judge, Saul Rabb, granted the motion, given the state's agreement. In the end, the grand jury reconsidered her case and issued no bill. She would not stand trial. The next day, a jury of eight men and four women was finally agreed. The hearing of evidence began with a description by the police officers of their arrival at the house on East New York Street, and speaking with the occupants there, as well as their initial interviews and statements with the police. Photographs of Sylvia's body in situ on the mattress were shown, and then the doctor who carried out the autopsy, Dr. Charles Ellis, described Sylvia's injuries. He noted that her lips were effectively shredded, her fingernails were broken, and she was missing patches of skin. Her liver indicated that she had suffered malnutrition, 
and the state of her kidneys indicated that she had been in shock before she died, perhaps as long as three days. There was a large bruise on her temple which had unclotted blood sitting below it. This injury would have likely caused unconsciousness. He determined that Sylvia's cause of death was a subdural hematoma from a blow to the head, in conjunction with shock, malnutrition, and her other underlying injuries. She had been dying for days, but could have survived if she had gotten medical help. His testimony carried into the following week. Then Lester Likens and Betty Likens took to the stand and gave evidence about how it had come to pass that Sylvia and Jenny were boarded with Mrs. Baniszewski. Defence lawyers tried to imply that it was partially due to their negligence that Sylvia had died. Jenny Likens was next up, and she described what she had seen in the house and what had happened to Sylvia. At the end of that day, the jury were taken out to the house at 3850 East New York Street to see the scene. Jenny resumed the stand the next day. When asked why she hadn't told someone about what was going on, she said she was scared of being beaten at the time, but she wished she had said something. The defence attorneys battered her with this line of questioning. If things were so bad, why didn't she tell someone? The final witness that week was Shirley Baniszewski, who was ten. She cried as she formally identified her mother and sister Paula for the court. She did little else bar show that she knew the difference between right and wrong before the court rested for the weekend. She returned Monday morning to answer questions on the first day of the third week of the trial. Shirley said she'd seen Coy push Sylvia hard against the wall. As she described what she'd seen happen to Sylvia and in some cases taken part in, she smiled and bounced in the seat. She didn't seem to understand the meaning that her testimony had and how serious it all was. She told the defence attorneys that she hadn't said anything about what was being done to Sylvia in the house because she thought that Sylvia was just being punished. Judy Duke was up next, describing how Coy had rubbed salt in Sylvia's wounds. She was followed by another neighbourhood kid who had been initially implicated in the death, Randy Lepper. He was very unsettling while giving evidence, smiling as he described Sylvia's reaction to being hit, and proudly claiming that the hose that had been used on her was his. After 16 days, the state finally rested. There were to be five defence cases put forward, starting with that of Gertrude Baniszewski. She denied having done anything to injure Sylvia, except to perhaps paddle her for bad behaviour. She was too sick and too weak, she said. She was too sick to stop her own kids or the neighbourhood kids from fighting with Sylvia. A psychologist told the court that Gertie was a loving woman, whose story seemed true to him. And he said that she would be unlikely to call her children liars. Yet he said that she was not psychotic, and she did know right from wrong. Paula didn't take the stand, rather her father was the only witness in her defence, recounting how he had seen his ex-wife hit and beat Paula on various occasions. Johnny Baniszewski's witness described him as a normal boy, not one that was hard to control like his mother had said. Coy Hubbard's employer appeared on his behalf, but had little to add bar that the boy was a good worker. 
Richard Hobbs testified in his own defense. He admitted having carved the words into Sylvia's abdomen and having branded her, and he said he'd slapped her backhanded during this process. He denied knowing or witnessing the other beatings, but told the court that he had seen a number of bruises and wounds on Sylvia when he had started his task. At least three quarters of them were already present on her body, he had said. He felt bad about it now, but at the time he didn't. He also said that he had heard of plans to bring Sylvia away from the house, to dump her somewhere. There were plans to be rid of the girl, or presumably her body. Stephanie Baniszewski also gave evidence about what had gone on in the house. At the time, she was still charged with murder and much was made of the fact that she had turned state's evidence. She said that she just wanted to be of help and that she had not made a deal with the prosecution. On Friday, the 20th of May, 1966, each attorney then made their closing statements. Gertie Baniszewski was cast as a deranged woman, who simply must have been insane in order to inflict or allow the injuries Sylvia had endured. Paula's involvement was minimized, with her lawyer saying that what she had admitted to doing did not add up to murder. He went on to say that, quote, We have dealt here with a family that has known chill penury for a long time. There was never sufficient money in the cookie jar. Consciously or unconsciously, There built up a feeling of anger against the world. There was no channel for its release until Sylvia Likens came to the household and provided a focal point. Counsel who represented both Coy Hubbard and Johnny Baniszewski laid the blame on society as a whole. His clients were children and could not and should not be put to death for their parts in what he termed as a tragedy that either of them could have easily been the victims of themselves. Richard Hobbs was painted by his lawyer as a victim in the whole affair. He had come under the sway of an older woman who had a proven attraction to young men. His involvement in the torture was also minimised. The lawyer said all that he had done was carve the words into Sylvia's skin and brand her, and hit her a few times. That's all. When they were done, Judge Rabb read out the instructions to the jury. There had been hundreds of suggested instructions put forth by the defence teams, in addition to the ones required in a capital murder case. In the end, he included only 16 of those put forth for consideration. They included instructions specific to Johnny Baniszewski and Richard Hobbs relating to their age that children between 7 and 14 were to be presumed incapable of committing crimes unless there was sufficient proof to show that they were capable of being aware of the nature of their acts. Another, in relation to Gertie's insanity plea, was read. It stated, quote, When there is mental capacity sufficient to fully comprehend the nature and consequences of an act, and unimpaired willpower strong enough to master an impulse to commit a crime, you may find there is criminal responsibility. End quote. The jury began deliberations at half five that evening and returned six hours later at one thirty in the morning. Gertrude Baniszewski was found guilty of first degree murder and sentenced to life imprisonment. Her eldest daughter, Paula, was found guilty of second-degree murder and also sentenced to life. 
Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, and Johnny Baniszewski were all found guilty of manslaughter. They were to be sent to the state reformatory for two to 21 years. On appeal, Gertrude and Paula Baniszewski's convictions were reversed due to the fact that they had been tried together and had not been granted a change of venue. On retrial, Gertie was again found guilty of first-degree murder and resentenced to life imprisonment. She was released on parole in 1985. She changed her name and moved to Iowa, where she died in 1990 at 62 of lung cancer. Paula, rather than go through with another trial, pleaded guilty to voluntary manslaughter and was sentenced to a further 2 to 21 years. She was released in 1973 and also moved to Iowa. The three boys were each released in 1968. Richard Hobbs died four years later from cancer. Coy Hubbard was in and out of prison until his death in 2007. Young Johnny found God and became a pastor. He died in 2005 of complications related to his diabetes. Stephanie made it to college and became a teacher. Jenny Likens was taken in by the prosecutor in her sister's murder trial, Mr. New, where she continued her schooling. She got a good job working with computers in a bank. She passed away at 54 in 2004. Just like Gertrude Baniszewski, Bernie McNeely, convicted of the murder of Suzanne Capper and the apparent ringleader of that gang, was released from prison despite her life sentence. Each of the defendants in that case appealed against the length of their sentences, barring Glyn Powell and with the exception of Jean Powell, each had their sentences reduced. Jeffrey Lee, convicted of false imprisonment, was released on license in 1998. Clifford Pook, convicted of the same charge and a charge of conspiracy to cause grievous bodily harm, was released three years later in 2001, also on license. McNeely was released on license in December 2014. She was lauded as an ideal prisoner, and it was said she was filled with remorse. She had helped other prisoners and completed an astounding number of courses while behind bars, ranging from physical education to horticulture. She also strove to maintain a relationship with her children from prison. She worked as a gym orderly and a listener for other inmates and counseled younger prisoners to stay away from the life of crime. But despite this, her 21 years in prison were not without their difficulties. During a routine security check in her cell in Her Majesty's Prison Durham, letters were found which indicated McNeely had been having an affair with the prison governor, Mike Martin. He resigned his position before a disciplinary hearing could take place. McNeely was moved on to another facility. She was also noted to be friends with both Rose West and Myra Hindley, other notorious female prisoners in the UK. Rumours were reported that McNeely's friendship with Hindley had had a more intimate aspect to it. At her release, ex-prisoners reported that the idea that McNeely showed remorse for her actions was wrong. She'd told one that she was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time when Suzanne had been murdered, and that none of it had been her fault. But in any event, McNeely was given a new look and a new name and released back into society. 
Jean Powell, now Jean Gillespie, Glyn Powell, and Anthony Dudson remain incarcerated for their parts in the murder of Suzanne Capper. Two crimes, decades apart, but with striking similarities. Both perpetrated on a teenaged girl, both seemed enabled and encouraged by an older woman. Bernie McNeely's drug of choice was speed, whereas Gertie Baniszewski's was phenobarbital and other sedatives used to treat her nervous disposition. Both girls endured prolonged suffering through torture that got worse over time, as the group involved became more emboldened in their behaviour and saw its victim as less and less human. In the case of the murder of Sylvia Likens, John Dean, a journalist who covered the Baniszewski's trial and literally wrote the book on the case, called The House of Evil, said of the circumstances surrounding the torture, quote, children harbouring some pent-up hostility, egged on by the slanders on Sylvia Likens, encouraged by the mob psychology of seeing others mistreat her, found that their own mistreatment of Sylvia was sanctioned and even prescribed by the only adult in the house, end quote. Similarly, Suzanne was a passive girl, just like Sylvia. She was easy to control and the group mentality behind this gang of young people who were acting with the approval and encouragement of the older women saw Suzanne as less than human the more time went on, and the violence against her increased. Whatever happened in that house, it wasn't a problem that occurred due to the poverty of the Moston area of Manchester, or due to the fact that the perpetrators were reliant on welfare. Something about the situation led them to not value life in a general sense, their own, or their victims. This, combined with the hostility that they held towards the world and society, meant that it didn't take too much to push them into rage and violence, meted out against the most helpless of their groups. And not much has really changed since either incident. Poor people on the margins of society are often branded as lazy and scroungers, up to no good, and unwilling to work to improve their lots. And hey, maybe some of them are. But if society values their lives less than their middle-class counterparts, is it any wonder that that occasionally plays out in the most horrific ways imaginable? Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and give a five-star rating. Or, even better, tell a friend. It really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at mensreapod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I love hearing from you, so do get in touch. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Neve Honer, Kristen Minnis, and Sonia O'Brien. Thank you so much for your support, ladies. It literally keeps the lights on and keeps the podcast going. There are now up to two monthly bonus episodes available to patrons, as well as nifty merch and my undying love. As the supermarket says, every little helps. Next time, we'll be in Scotland, where we'll visit the scene of a crime that is better described as a disaster, with a death toll 
into the hundreds. Our theme music is Quinn's song The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Baniszewski. Gertie Baniszewski. Gertie Baniszewski. Gertie Baniszewski. Gertie Baniszewski. Gertie Baniszewski. 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 Beyond Contempt True Crime is an independent narrative-based podcast that often discusses cases now well covered in the true crime podcasting community. In Season 1, I'll take on lesser-known cases like Amy Bishop, professor-turned-mass-murderer, Richard Mark Evans, the serial killer who hid in plain sight, and the tragic murder of Margaret Anderson, a case that terrified the small community of Green Bay, Wisconsin. If you're looking for something new, search for Beyond Contempt True Crime wherever you get podcasts. I'm Renee, and thanks for listening.